Welcome back to the Motivational Intelligence Podcast, where we talk about the third and most important category of intelligence that enables ordinary people to do extraordinary things. I'm Sean Johnson, and in this episode, Dave and I got to hang with fellow Rochesterian who is much more impressive than we are, NFL Super Bowl champion and teamwork and performance expert Roland Williams. I go into the details of his bio a bit more at the beginning of this episode, but just a few highlights for you so you can get a feel for how impressive this guy is. He's won the St. Louis Rams Rookie of the Year Award, the NFL Unsung Hero Award, two-time winner of the Oakland Raiders Man of the Year Award, AFC Championship with the Raiders, and of course, Super Bowl thirty-four with the Rams, who actually went from worst team in the NFL to best team in the NFL in one year. We dive into it to exactly how they did that. They're the only team in history to ever do that. And what I love about Roland is that with all of his success and acclaim, the thing that he seems to get most excited about is his work as a philanthropist through the Champions Academy, where he's helped more than a thousand at-risk middle and high school students overcome barriers and maximize their potential. Happy Super Bowl Sunday, y'all. Please enjoy this episode with the Super Bowl champ himself, Roland Williams. The Motivational Intelligence Podcast is produced by the team at Two Logical. Two Logical is an international corporate training firm and the world's leading expert in motivational intelligence, which is the ability to understand, manage, and change the motives people have. Two Logical offers over 30 different keynotes, workshops, and full training courses to small, medium, and large Fortune 500 companies in 53 countries, a lot of which you're probably familiar with. Pfizer, Bank of America, GE, Constellation Brands, P&G, and more. All solutions are completely customized and the feedback from these sessions will blow your mind. If you have any training or speaking needs or just want to say hey, head over to twological.com. All right, welcome back, everybody, to the Motivational Intelligence Podcast. We have a special format with a very special guest today. So uh, me and Dave, uh, if you've been listening to this podcast before, you know Dave Naylor, Two Logicals, uh, Executive Vice President of, of Global Learning. And today we're hanging with Rochester native, uh, NFL Super Bowl champion, and teamwork and performance expert, Roland Williams. So a little bit about Roland. He's a graduate of East High in Rochester, New York, and Syracuse University, where he was one of the nation's top student athletes. He's won the St. Louis Rams Rookie of the Year Award, the NFL Unsung Hero Award, two-time winner of the Oakland Raiders Man of the Year Award, the American Football Conference Championship with the Raiders, and of course, Super Bowl 34 with the Rams, which has been called one of the greatest Super Bowls of all time. He's been a sports analyst with ESPN, CBS, and NBC Sports, and his professional development firm works with Fortune 500 companies, including Viacom, uh, U.S. Army, Northwestern Mutual, Merrill Lynch, and Coca-Cola. And he's got a secret project that he's working on that maybe we'll, uh, we'll tr- draw out in, in our conversation. And perhaps most impressively of, of all that uh, is his work in, in philanthropy through his Champions Academy, where he's helped more than 1,000 at-risk middle and high school students overcome barriers and maximize their potential. So that's quite a resume. Uh, Roland, thanks for hanging with us today. We're really excited. <laughs> Well, thank you for reading that entire uh, intro. Your check is in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) All right, perfect. It worked. Uh, There you go. Yeah. Um, So I wanted to to start actually um, in uh, maybe a unique spot. 
You did, uh, you were on an MTV show called Made in 2008. Um, and <laughs> I want, I could you tell that story? <laughs> That's so awesome that you remember that. <laughs> I'm like, there was like, I did my homework, man. <laughs> right. Well, well, <laughs> you know, life after football, you know, we uh, try to keep ourselves busy. And the producers of the show Made knew that I did work with uh, teenagers and said, would you help us transform a young kid who's strong in academics, but a little low on social skills and sports. And for months, we, uh, I worked with a kid named Sid Hunt Mesra. He's a great kid. I actually had dinner with him and his fiance a couple months ago. And uh, it was about transformation. And, and I think the, the, the best thing that sports have taught me throughout my life is that you don't have to stay where you are through hard work and commitment and consistency and the power of teamwork. You can grow exponentially in a short amount of time. And he did. And it was a hilarious episode. Yeah, it was, it was a funny one. I think there was a, there was a quote, uh, cause you, you took him a long way. I think it, I remember a quote from it. You said, if I, if I actually transform this kid, I need to win an, win an Emmy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So what was, you know, uh, for, for, you know, you working with, with Sid, what was your coaching philosophy? Cause you started out, you know, where, where he started was not anywhere close to being able to be near competitive on a football field. Well, I think similar to the work that I do with the champion Academy, or we take students with zero point and 1.0 grade point averages and struggling with some social emotional challenges, that true change starts in your mind. Right. Um, the first thing we had to do with Sid Hunt was to get him to have what we call um, a stronger, unbreakable belief muscle uh, to believe that he could be successful despite his tragic sports past. And so a lot of it was about changing his belief system and then being honest about what the strategy would be to get him to develop. And, and, and that's something that um, in his instance, he took this his rigorous training session and he tried to attack it. And it's the same thing with life, right? Once you believe that you can be successful, the next thing is what is the literal strategy to get you to the next level? And do you have the courage to take those steps? Yeah, absolutely. So, so Roland, I mean, and this is, it's such an interesting question. Such, I mean, the teen years are such fragile times for kids anyway. The, uh, and you know, they've got the, their hormones are going crazy. They, they're racked with self doubts. And so how did you go about kind of attacking that flawed belief system? Um, and, and, and really beginning to build on that? Well, um, I think that, I think that too often people sort of forget the fact that we were all teenagers. And I think that when we go through that journey, um, it's, what things made us feel more encouraged? And to me, um, it is authenticity. It's being relatable and sharing sort of your tough times, the things you went through and showing where you are today. And so I think it comes with letting them see the future of what their lives can be if they just take certain steps. And what I told Sid Hunt in that episode was that it's not about you trying to become Tom Brady or becoming, you know, at that time, Joe Montana, or maybe it was, you know, whoever the quarterbacks were at that time, Kurt Warner. And it's, it's just about him becoming a better version of himself. And I think that when we shifted the mentality of saying it's not Sid versus 
the starting quarterback of your high school, it's Sid versus Sid. I think that that concept is one that everybody can buy into and saying that I can improve 1% from yesterday, right? I can do better incrementally. And, And then I think if you convince them to stay focused in that space, they'll bump their head on their best version of themselves uh, down the road. Right. That's such a great insight. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting how often we talk to folks and, and they, they say something along those lines. And I think that so often people, they compare themselves to other people, which isn't really a fair comparison uh, in in that regard, because, you know, so often you'll come out on the losing end of things because, you know, other people may be more successful in some aspect of life than you are, or they may be smarter than you are in certain subjects and those kinds of things or better musicians or whatever it may be, you know, and so it, it really is a recipe for feeling bad about yourself. But to your point, Roland, if we, if we look at it as how do we become a better version of ourselves and how do we become 1% better tomorrow, then we start feeling good about who we are rather than bad about what we're not. Absolutely. I'm, I'm here now. It's crazy guys. I have three sons now. My oldest is 16. Um, my middle son, 13 and nine. And I'm still trying to show them it doesn't matter about dad's past and what I did in the past, incremental growth still applies. And so now I'm trying to grow as a man, as an individual, as a father on a, on a season by season basis still. Right. And, and, and with that comes highs and lows with that comes successes and failures, but hopefully they see the, the consistency of me trying to become the best version of myself and that's something that those universal uh, strategies, that evergreen principle, that applies to everything you do, right? Yeah. So, Roland, let me ask you, you know, how do you, you know, a lot of people, they go through a successful NFL career, they win a Super Bowl, you know, they, they become at the time that the highest paid tight end in the in the NFL. Well, hold on, a lot of people don't do that. Yeah, John. okay, no, yeah. pretty yeah, much. Roland did it, yeah. but <laughs> Right. <laughs> but the people that do that that do it, a lot of times you see them, you know, kind of rest on their laurels after after all that. You know, they they hang up their cleats or whatever it is. They've achieved a certain level of success and they kind of get complacent with where they are. How how do you stay motivated and you know, you're, you're somebody who's a living embodiment of continuing to strive after you've achieved so much, how do you continue to stay motivated to continue to be better? Um, I think that that's what an interesting question that is. First off, I'll tell you that every successful person is human. So anybody out there thinking that it's completely easy to transition from one thing of greatness and instantaneously jump to another one, that's not the case. It's not easy, but what you have to do is think about the principles of what do you want your life to be, right? I think there's a, there's a larger conversation. See, when I was growing up off Genesee Street and looking to escape a world of, of, of trauma, of poverty, of, of drugs, gangs, looking to avoid that world, my desire was to, you know, I, I thought making money, going to the NFL, anything along that lines was like the end all be all. And what my biggest takeaway was when I finished and accomplished and got to the mountaintop of that world, I realized that that wasn't the mountaintop of life at all. Right. 
there was there had to be a recalibration and asking myself those questions. What do you want? Right? What do you really want out of life? And ask larger conversations. And then what do I have to do to get there? So I think that it's it's hitting the reset button is really the technical answer to that question. It's after you accomplish what you have put all your focus in, after you've gotten and won your Super Bowl, what's next? And if you're in the same occupation, it could be another Super Bowl if it was football. But if it's not football, there's still the Super Bowl equivalent that you can apply for other phases of your life. So now I have Super Bowls of wanting to create and expand the most comprehensive mentoring program for at-risk teens in poverty in the world. I have a desire to make more money and help more people than I did during my football days through my business activities. You know, so I've redefined it, right? My new Super Bowls are to be the best father I can be for my three sons and help them live a life minus many of the trauma and pain that I've been through. So I really, I really think the big answer is sort of to reset your clock, to choose your new Super Bowls, and then get to work. Yeah. Well, and, and Roland, you too, I mean, you had the benefit in that reset of, of knowing what it was that took you to your first Super Bowl. You know, what you, what you had to learn through that journey, the dues that you had to pay, the, the, you know, the yep. pain and the effort that, that, that it all went to. And I think where a lot of people struggle is they don't even know how to get to their first Super Bowl, let alone mm. be able to reset. Right. I think that uh, the the principles of getting there is what I've tried to consolidate mm-hmm. and teach to our teen teens that we work with at the Champion Academy, to my sons, even to my corporate and business clients. And I liken this process um, to uh, building our physical bodies, uh, building be, being a bodybuilder. When you see a bodybuilder, right, they are physically strong and it's very apparent by looking at them aesthetically right you see their muscles and their strength and although success in a physical activity isn't guaranteed they're they have the highest probability to get it done based off what you see their strength they, they use their muscles to accomplish their goals well i believe that when it comes to accomplishing our larger dreams in our lives there's mental muscles and by building up these mental muscles as strong as they possibly can be, we're not guaranteed to accomplish anything, but we have a much better probability to accomplish more than the average mind or the no different than the average body. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So the, the, the five mental muscles are as follows. The first one is called the unbreakable belief muscle. It's how strong can we get our mind to believe that we can be successful in something extraordinary despite our past and despite what's around us. The second mental muscle is called the ultimate truth muscle. How strong is our mind, our ability to be honest about where we are today, the good and bad, be honest about where we really want to go, that we really believe that we can have, and then be honest about the steps it's going to take on a day-by-day basis for us to get there. 
The third mental muscle is called the conscious courage muscle. Are our minds, and do they have the ability to do the uncomfortable, consistent items necessary to accomplish our goals despite fear or danger or uncertainty, right? Mm -hmm. The fourth mental muscle is called the intentional teamwork muscle. How strong is our ability to get people, places, and things around us to help us move closer to our goal? How strong is our mental ability to get people away from us, stay away from places and things that don't help us, right? And, and last but not least, it's our passionate perseverance muscle. How strong is our mental ability to have that same energy to keep fighting for our goals even when it does not happen overnight, right? As I try to dissect what happened from me coming from poverty to Super Bowl, from our NFL Ram team going from worst place my first year to Super Bowl champions my second year, as I look at my entire life and a diaspora, the people that I've seen and talked to, it all comes down to strengthening those muscles, right? And, and, and then um, doing your best. Because even with all those things, this is, this is the part I want to say, even with all those things, it still doesn't guarantee success. Even doing everything perfect and everything right, it doesn't guarantee success right? It just gives you a higher probability to accomplish your goals. And so I think that when people look at life for what it is, there are no guarantees, right? It all comes down to us improving our probability for success based off our thoughts, words, and actions, and then letting go and letting sort of the, our higher power uh, make that choice, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I wholeheartedly, that's, that's, very well put. And it, you know, especially the, the part at the end where, where, you know, you're talking about, even if we do everything right, it's, you know, at the end of the day, some of these things are, are out of our control. And, and you see that philosophy a lot in a lot of football coaches, you know, Bill Belichick and, and Nick Saban are big about do your job and focus on the process and at each play, just doing the best that, that you can. And if you do that, you're putting yourself, doesn't guarantee anything, but you're putting yourself in a much higher probability situation to win the game or win the Super Bowl. That's exactly right. So, Roland, you touched before uh, on kind of where where you came from, and, and you talked about authenticity as part of how you can help encourage people to go from where they are to where they want to be by talking about where you came from and some of the the struggles and and obstacles that you overcome overcame. So, you touched a little bit uh, on your childhood. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. Well, my, uh, my mom and dad had me when they were both seniors in high school at Monroe High School. My mom, a six-foot, two-and-a-half basketball player, a volleyball girl, head cheerleader. My dad would start a football team. Um, they became best friends plus more. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, they never got married. But my parents have, you know, they, they remained good friends over the years. Uh, but it was tough because when you don't live in a house with both your parents, 
um, there lies a lot more opportunity for a host of toxic role models, uh, mentors, influences um, that, that probably aren't optimal for success. Uh, growing up in the 19th Ward, um, you know, you, you run into a lot, and there's a, a, a lot of detours that you could take at any given moment, and I'm grateful for a lot of people that were in my life, uh, mentors, a lot of grace, my dad uh, at different times, showing me another world and helping me navigate through some of the pitfalls. Uh, my father actually worked for 38 years for uh, Monroe County Children's Center in St. Joseph's Village, juvenile correctional facilities. Um, so I grew up firsthand being around um, the environment of what happens when you make poor decisions and, and the lifelong punishment that sometimes comes with those decisions, right? And so to go along with that, um, you know, uh, you know, my, my family didn't always make the best decisions and choices with their own personal lives and relationships. And as a result, um, I was around a lot of uh, traumatic experiences, um, a lot of abuse, a lot of um, pain, uh, physical and emotional. And uh, obviously, when, when you don't have a lot of finances, um, it puts you in an environment, right, that not only challenges your economic reality, but also can challenge your mental reality. So, so my childhood, I went, I went through a lot, um, and I was grateful for things like sports uh, for giving me a positive outlet. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, things went pretty good from there, man. It, it, it looked pretty good from there. But I, I'm the first one in my immediate family uh, to go to um, a four-year college. Um, I have um, family members who I'm really deeply proud of, uh, a few bright spots here and there. But for the most part, um, you know, it, it, it started with me. And so going to Syracuse was, was a great experience. Um, they told me I could go to class for free, free classes. I said, really? I said, yeah, you go to many as you want. And so I was grateful to go there and uh, get undergrad degree uh, with a, a minor in management from Whitman School. I went to graduate school at, at SI Newhouse. And uh, even when I retired, I actually went to Wharton um, to uh, continue to, to my, my, my educational process. So it's been a great journey, man. I've overcome it a lot. And now, now I'm excited to try to pass it on to everybody else so they can accomplish their goals and overcome. So, Roland, the, you, you talked of, about the influence of sports and kind of how that helped you to, to avoid some of those bad influences. So did you start playing football at a, at a very young age? How did, how did you, you – know, you mentioned your dad was a star football player, but how, how did you come into football? All right, well, first off, when you grow up in Rochester, you start playing street ball. So I played ball in the street. You play in the cement, and when the car comes, you yell out, car! And then you get <laughs> off the street, and you go play on the sideline. Um, you learn uh, toughness and grit because you don't want to get tackled on the street because the cement really hurts. And, um, you know, you don't want to get tackled. The worst spot is, like, on the curb in between the cement and the grass. It really hurts. So, you know, you start playing there. Um, I played uh, a couple years of youth football. Um, we played in the summertime a game called Shoot 'em Up, Bust 'em Up, which is another old school game that builds toughness. You throw the ball in the air, and then all the guys sort of tackle each other. Pretty, pretty weird game in retrospect. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> right, and then and then my high school career uh, 
people don't know, but it wasn't that illustrious, right? My freshman year, I was uh, not that talented, big kid with a good attitude. I played O-line and D-line. My sophomore year, the head coach of varsity saw something in me and told me to come off of varsity my sophomore year. And I asked him, why? But he's like, because I want you to. And what position? He said, tight end. I said, what's a tight end? <laughs> <laughs> and and he, he was like, like Mark Favaro from the Giants, you big dope. I said, oh, <laughs> yeah, I like Mark Favaro. He's the man. And that's how I became tight end, right? And so literally um, that journey of sitting the bench my sophomore year, my junior year, uh, I, I actually started and was ready to have a great year. In the first game of the season, I broke my foot. And I literally missed the entire junior season. So um, going back to saying, I know that it's more than just athletic ability or talent to get you to the top. And after anything in life, it's more than just natural talent, much more to get you to the top of anything you're trying to pursue, right? It takes you to have uh, the temperament right? To go through the paces to pay the price. And I think that's where mental muscles come in, right? Strong mental muscles lead to Super Bowls and I'm living testimony. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and so at that point, you said, you know, one game into the, uh, your junior year, you, you broke your foot. What were you, what was your mentality at that point? That that's gotta be really tough where you're coming in, you're all excited about the season. Uh, you know, you, you're, you're finally got the starting spot what was your mentality like at that point? And was that some time where you, you kind of had to figure out how to, to flex those mental muscles? Yeah. Well, I think, I think that might've been the time in my life where actually I started building them for the first time because after I broke my foot, man, I was broken. I was sad. Yeah. I was depressed. I had never had much high school success. Um, you, as you can tell, or you probably can remember in high school, they're not that kind. So some of the things that my teammates had to say about me and, you know, I didn't have the, you know, the cool football status, didn't have the, the girlfriend. I didn't have, you know, I was fat. And um, it got to the point where I sort of had to sort of deal with myself and said, well, if I only get one more year to play, I'm going to do my absolute best. And I'd rather just do my absolute best and, 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 and never play again. But at least I can leave out with my head, head, head held high. Right. And so that was my big determination factor. And then my dad of all people, my dad was working a lot of jobs, busy. He came at me and told me about the Syracuse university football camp. And he said, he heard that if you go there and play well, these football camps, they consider you for scholarships. And so he signed me up, man. And I didn't have a suitcase. I literally carried all my stuff in a trash bag. The industrial size ones, you know, the thicker ones. Yeah, <laughs> those yeah. Are the, those are the yeah. <laughs> so, so on the back of the brochure, it said like two socks, you know, two shorts, you know, three shoes. So whatever it said in the back of that brochure, I put it inside that industrial size trash bag, rolled it up. And my dad took me to the Syracuse football camp. And when I went there, um, it was, it was again, it, it taught me to build mental muscles because there was all the kids from Florida and Texas and all the big names and, had all the stats and all the the high school career for that date. And here I was, the kid from Rochester with no stats. But by playing next to them, by being around them and seeing I was better than them in a whole lot of ways, it, it gave me 
that that belief muscle that I believe that I could be phenomenal, even though maybe nobody else in Rochester knew it. When I left from that Syracuse football camp, I knew it. I knew I was one of the best players in the country, and I was determined to do my best to show it to everybody. Well, yeah, that's that that's phenomenal. And and so you had talked before, you know, you you mentioned that um, you know from where you came from in, in your childhood, you it was a rough environment, and there was a lot of times where you could have, you know, uh, people could have gone down the wrong path. And there's, there's a lot of, you know, drugs and gangs and, and things like that. But you mentioned there was, there were some people, some mentors that really helped you during that time to, to keep you on track. And I would imagine they, they're, you know, in part, uh, would, would, uh, deserve some credit in where you, where you got to, where you started building your own mental muscles. Who were some of those other mentors in your life and, and what did they do for you? That's a great question, man. You know, the, the truth is, is that mentors come in all shapes and sizes. You know, obviously, um, my mother, uh, my father, uh, my grandparents provided some stability and had different nuggets and pieces that I took from. But there was a big part of my life that was basically by committee, right? I had amazing homeroom teachers, Miss Rich and Miss Murphy who carried themselves with kindness and dignity every single day and used to talk to me when I was going through different challenges. And I had a great uh, high school counselor named Fred Medina who actually uh, forced us to take the PSAT and the SAT when none of us really knew what the heck that was, right? Um, my dad had friends that used to show up. I had a, a great godfather, and, and he had another friend um, that carried themselves with dignity and always were clean cut and had a smile on their face and were positive and optimistic, right? Um, people who, who didn't even know I noticed, right, that might have worked at the coffee shop or people that I saw that were security guards. And uh, just by committee, watching the world um, and watching goodness in people and watching greatness, right? Watching TV back in the day, my dad was a big Dallas Cowboy fan, and we used to always watch Tony Dorsett and the boys. And um, watching them in the Showtime Lakers and Magic Johnson, I always like how Magic – was like a cool dude. He was really good and a savage, but he always had a smile on his face, man. I was like, dude, magic is the man. <laughs> and so all of these things, right, all combined together, like mixed up for all of my influences, right? And, and, and sometimes, you know, that, that, that television mentorship, right, of, of the aspirational life you want to live, right? And I know, I know uh, Bill Cosby isn't, isn't the most famous, you know, he's an infamous now, but Back in the day, his show was, was transformative for a lot of kids, right, to see this, this dynamic of a family unit of somebody that looked like them. And so, so all of these things were a part of my experience uh, and kept me out of trouble, right? And, uh, you know, far too many people to name. I think, I think that's one of the things I'm most excited about is that um, I'm community-raised, and that's why I have so much loyalty for Rochester. Yeah, that's a great thing. That's awesome. So one one thing that we hear a lot uh, in, and I think is is pretty common um, vernacular is people talk about natural ability. Um, would you would you consider yourself at, at when you were in high school? Were you would you consider yourself a, a natural ability, or was it something that more you had to develop over time? I would say <clears throat> the whole natural ability thing. Um, I don't, I don't really believe in it um, holistically. Um, I believe that you start out with certain 
genetic coding that might give you a predisposition. You know, no different than Michael Phelps and his unique arm span, wingspan of his arms and his body type might presuppose him, right, to have more ability. Um, I think you still have to cultivate it and work at it and be in an environment to develop your skill set, right? So I think me being a big boy, not being a small fry, really helped me. I think that the natural habitat of growing up in the hood and the competitive nature of the hood, the unrelenting right desire and fighting for survival, I think gives you some some abilities, right, some skill sets. Uh, to navigate and compete, right? I think that I think that um, at the end of the night, though, it comes down to what you do, right? And so um, that's 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 the truth, gang, right? It's like you still have to put in the work, whether you know you're putting in the work or not, if that makes sense, right? I didn't realize I was gaining all these competitive competitive uh, skill sets and traits growing up and navigating in the tough neighborhood I grew up in. But in retrospect, I was, right? I didn't, I didn't realize I was developing this thick skin and this temperament, right, and this courage. Um, going through some of the things I went through in my childhood. But it was. And so I think it's, it's important to know that sometimes there's those Miyagi-san karate kid moments in your life where you're gaining skill sets you don't even know you're gaining until they're unveiled. Yeah. I think that makes so much sense. You know, it's amazing how I think that concept of natural ability is a crutch that, that so many people, you know, use, they, they look at anybody who's accomplished anything of magnitude and, and they just immediately default to, you know, that person's got, you know, natural abilities. They didn't have to work for it. It came easy to them. And, and since I don't have those natural abilities, then I can, I can never get to those places. I'm like, uh, I think that everyone has abilities. Um, I think that uh, I think there are some natural abilities, things like uh, a will to survive, <laughs> right? Yeah. A, a desire for happiness and peace. I think there are some natural, holistic human things. And I think the more that we tap into our human conditions, it'll help us be better. Uh, for example, they say that our passions are in the middle of what we love versus what we hate. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, 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 it's when you think about what things you love that bring you to an emotional tipping point of happiness and make you almost want to cry because you love them so much. What are those things? And when you, that's human, that's natural. What's what comes out when you say that naturally, what do you love with everything that you are? And then conversely, what do you hate with everything you are that really, really makes you upset? And if you can intersect those things, right, a fusion between what you love and what you hate, I think everyone has that natural ability to get fired up about something, right? And, and I think that's a good starting point that can lead you down the road towards skill development and ultimate success. Yeah, I'd, I'd never really thought of passion that way, but that's such a such a unique and such a cool way to think about it. 
and uh, you could you could see how the, that those combinations of of love and hate would really put together like an explosive fire in somebody um, feeling the, both of those things at the same time. I, I love that. So it worked for me. <laughs> yeah, it definitely worked for you. Um, so I wanted to Roland. I wanted to to move towards uh, your NFL career. Um, so in 1998, you were drafted by the Rams, and that year they were four and twelve, which was they were the worst team in the NFL. And in 1999, you were guys were 13 and three, and you won the Super Bowl. Which, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that team was the only team to ever go from worst to best in the NFL in one year. Is that right? Correct. Yep. Wow. So can you talk about how do you, what did that process look like where, where you're coming into, you're drafted to the worst team in the NFL and literally the next year you're winning the Super Bowl. How did that transformation happen? <laughs> well, I sort of alluded to it earlier with the mental muscles, mm-hmm. but I tell you coming into a team that's worse than the league. First off, when you get in the NFL, you're so happy to be in the NFL. You, you don't really care what team originally, initially. You're like, who cares? Yeah. I'm in the NFL. I'm yeah. so happy. But after you start playing in the games in the season and you lose and lose <laughs> and lose and lose, uh, you quickly realize that just getting to the show is not enough. Right? Just yeah. being in the arena, that's not enough. To satisfy your spirit. That's, that's not enough. Yeah. At some point, just getting there is not enough. Right? You, you, people have a, I believe that we all want to be successful. And you probably wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't want to be successful. Um, I think it comes down to being honest and confrontational about what you really want. And so I think what our head coach did was a great job of helping us build mental muscles. Right. He had the team meeting after our uh, 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 tragic my rookie rookie season. I was rookie of the year, though. So as, as a bright spot. I was yeah, that's, that's the best of the worst. I mean, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but he asked us, uh, what do we want? He asked us, do we want to win a Super Bowl? You know, being honest, do, do we really want to win a Super Bowl? And so we had to really confront the truth. He then went into breaking down an autopsy of the last 10 years or 10 seasons of Super Bowl champions and what we had in common with those teams. He convinced, he, 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 he continued to ask us as individuals, can we rise up to, to set standard and can we do the work necessary to accomplish X goal? And, and maybe the, one of the statistics I believe at the time was Every Super Bowl champion had at least 10 people, 10 positions that were in the top five in their, uh, you know, in their division or in the league, right? In their conference or in the league. And so when you start looking at, you know, position by position, you know, you need to have people that get the job done. And so he went position by position to ask the question, can you be in the top five of your conference? Is that possible for you to be in the top five in the league? It's simple. Right. Yeah. And so he started building this buy-in, this belief system. And we maybe had at the time 18 people that said they could. Right. Mm-hmm. Everybody's ego. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, all we got to do is get 10 of 18. 
Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so he, he built a case that was, in essence, building our unbreakable belief muscle. When we left out of that team meeting, before the season even started, we honestly believed, for X amount of reasons, why we were going to win the Super Bowl next year. We really believed that. And so it's so funny because, you know, we left out, had a press conference, and we were talking to the media. And, I mean, they're laughing at us. I mean, they're literally thinking you guys are, you know, whatever Coach V has you guys smoking. You know what I mean? It's hilarious. But you guys are uh, – we love your optimism, but we don't agree, right? Yep. And so we, we really believed it. So that's the, that's the hilarious part about, about that unbreakable belief muscle. Once you start believing, man, and you believe something's going to happen – you don't care what nobody has to say. And, and they can laugh at you on the front end, and you can laugh with them. Ha, 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 ha. Right. But I still believe it. And, and, and then there's nothing better than, than executing the rest of the blueprint to get that job done. So, Yeah. Well, it sounds like, you know, what he did a, a great job of is, you know, I think a lot of times goal, when people set lofty goals like winning a Super Bowl, particularly you know, you're sitting as, with the worst record in the NFL – winning a Super Bowl seems like such an audacious, unrealistic goal. But it sounds like what he did is really just break that down into smaller parts that felt, felt much more achievable, even just on the individual level. Absolutely. Isn't that life? Yeah. If I'm trying to lose 20 pounds, isn't that life? It's, only, it's all a series of steps, right? Yeah. All the great coaches, everything you want to accomplish in life that's major is all broken into steps. So we can break down little steps to he could have said our goal is to make the playoffs this year, but he didn't. He could have said our goal was just to win a division, right? But he didn't. He could have said our record was just have a winning season. So I think the audaciousness comes with the individual making a decision that they can have greatness and not allowing some of their own personal issues or allow the past to dictate their future, right? We can have all the abundance that we seek, right? We can have the million-dollar companies next year. We can accomplish the amazing as long as we understand the clear steps to make that a reality, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So could you, you know, you, you mentioned what, you know, you had Dick Vermeil was, was your coach uh, at that time. What, could you describe Dick Vermeil as a leader? What was he like? He had to be a hell of a salesperson. Yeah, he, he convinced like the whole it. team to go from, you know, worst to first. Yeah. I know Dick Vermeil was like playing for your grandfather. Um, <laughs> he, was, he was so so emotional, you know, emotional, loving, and kind. A very kind leader. I mean, he, yell, he, he yells and goes crazy, but it was always covered with or included a whole lot of love before it. So he really did a good job of building up his emotional bank account with his players to feel as though as close as he could. I mean, although we weren't, you know, we weren't obviously the real family. Uh, he made you feel like as we were a football family, right? Um, in the off season, before the season starts, he invited every guy to their home. He cooked dinner by position for every player on the team, his wife, you know, serving up the meat or whatever. It was great. And he really talked about you, wanting to get to know you as a person and, and be a, a genuine person, be authentic, right? And so you knew that he wanted to win, but you also knew he loved you and wanted you to have your best life. And I think it was that combination of both that got guys to really listen. 
and he really tried to reason with us. Does that make sense? He didn't dictate it. He tried to reason to help us understand. That way we would take ownership. That's such a great, you know, and you see that in business as well, Roland, that, uh, you know, the, the, the authenticity of the, uh, of the best leaders, the fact that they, they genuinely show their people that they care about them, that they, they, you know, they care about their goals and their aspirations. And you, you buy a level of loyalty and commitment when you do that, that you, you just can't get any other way. And obviously it showed in what you guys did and, uh, you know, when you won the Super Bowl. I think players always play harder for coaches like that, too. Yeah. Absolutely. And players play harder when they know and love their teammates like that, right? I think that's the – even the, 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 the overarching one is he get, not only did our head coach do a great job, but as a team collectively, we were proactive in the process of bringing ourselves together. So we played for ourselves and our coach. How did, you know, that's a, that's, a, you know, it's, I think that's a great point, Roland, because you can see a team when they're struggling, you know, they start picking at one another and, you know, you didn't, you know, you didn't do your job there. And because you did this, this happened to me. And so you can see the finger pointing and the blame and all of that starting when, you know, when a team is struggling, you know, and so how did you guys really go from that struggling phase to pulling together as a tight, cohesive unit where you, you loved your teammates, you supported your teammates, you believed in your teammates, and, and thus you guys were able to lift the team. I, I really go back and think about it. Outside of us building, of course, strong mental muscles of individuals, we also had a strong spiritual bond of a team. Although um, everyone on our team wasn't, you know, wasn't Christian, um, a large majority of them were. Um, everyone had some kind of spiritual practice. And I think that we all connected on a, on a desire to love each other as teammates, right? There was, a, there was a spiritual connection of genuinely loving each other and understanding that we all um, wanted better for our lives and for our careers. And so that accountability, right? There was a sense of a real brotherhood, right? But it, was, it, was, it wasn't paycheck-based or it wasn't... Um, you know, go to the bar based. It was, I love you based, right? And then I really want you to succeed in your life and I want us to succeed as a team. And we're tired of losing as a collective. Like spiritually, we're tired of it. And I think that when every human being gets sick and tired of something, right? When you get sick and tired of getting sick and tired, watch out because action soon follows, right? Yeah, so who were, you know, were, were there leaders that uh, players that that were kind of leaders in instilling that culture on the team yep um we had uh great guys you've heard of kurt warner he was our quarterback um he had uh in in, in our team uh, we had like a bible study every wednesday at his house you know his wife brought us donuts and stuff and we might have had 40 guys there out of a 53-man roster wow wow um we, we, uh, Ray Agnew, another great guy. He's now in the scouting department for the Rams. Um, we literally, um, Isaac Bruce, a great receiver that I hope the guy gets to the hall of fame soon. Just great leaders, good people, man. You know what I mean? Um, Adam Timmerman. I mean, we just had so many veteran, 
great human beings on the team. The list goes on and on. And we just enjoyed each other, right? I mean, it was still a locker room. We still, you know, fought like brothers and argued and, you know, did stupid stuff. But we always respected and loved each other, right? Yeah. So and that what, was great. So, you know, whether it's Kurt Warner or Isaac Bruce, what made what was special about those people that, you know, that, that really helped instill that culture? What was different about them? I would say, um, you know, it, it's not... I would say it, it, it's 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 faith, but I would say it's it's faith as evidenced by your work, right? There's many people that may say I'm I'm a believer, say I'm a person of faith, I'm a person of spirituality. They may say those things, but when you watch their daily actions, they don't communicate that way. They don't come off that way. They're not kind. They're not considerate. They're not humane, and so. Um, to honor everyone's religion, I don't. I, I don't think it's necessarily about ascribing uh, to religion, other than a spirit of authenticity, of kindness, of togetherness, of unity, of purity. Right? These these universal principles: fairness, honesty, integrity. Right? It's people who walk in those, who walk in it every day. It's a lot easier for the team to get behind them and, and rally behind their actions. Yeah, they lead by example. Yeah, there's a congruence. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. So one other one other player that um, uh, I was curious to that that you played with that um, I would love to to hear you talk about was uh, one of the all time greats, Jerry Rice. What was it like playing with him? <laughs> oh man, <laughs> whole different world. So that was with the Rams when I played. We won our Super Bowl. And then I went to the Raiders, and uh, going to the Raiders, um, you know, Tim Brown. Uh, one of the a great legend that was there. But then Jerry Rice came on the team. And I was a big Jerry Rice fan growing up. So to actually play with Jerry, be in the huddle with Jerry, it was just interesting to watch his work ethic. And one of the things that Jerry Rice did that I thought was just so interesting was he took every second from the time he walked into the locker room to the time he left, seriously the heart attack. There was no wasted energy, wasted movement. He was always focused and locked in on the task at hand. We used to have a thing called walkthrough. We walked through our plays. Jerry Rice used to like fully tape up his fingers and like literally do it like he was playing in the Super Bowl and walkthroughs. He walked through his steps exactly every route. He was so precise, so focused. And um, this was at the end of his career. You know, so I understand how he became the player that he is because of his attention to detail and his and his his focus. Yeah, it's it, it, you you hear that about a lot of people who were were the greats is is was their practice habits. You know, people say the same thing about about Kobe and how intense he was in in practice. It's but I think it is you know it's it's you practice the way you you want to play and how you do the little things is is how you do the big things. He was an amazing player, man. So I got I got to talk about Jerry Rice all day, but <laughs> just know that he's as advertised, and he loved the game more than anybody I know. Obviously, he played it for 20 years, which I thought that was amazing onto itself, right? He played pro ball for 20 years. It's crazy. Yeah. Him, and, him, and, him and Tom Brady, you got to take your hat to those guys. 20 years is a long time. 
especially in, you know, in the league where there's so many injuries and, you know, to, to be able to stay healthy and, and, and have that longevity in your career is, is truly an amazing thing. I, I actually just heard, I was listening to another podcast. I can't recall what it was, but they were, um, the, the athlete was talking about, um, they had had uh, a 49ers reunion from, you know, one of their Super Bowl years and, and they kind of did a little pickup game, uh, you know, as a result. And, and uh, they, they said that the, the only player who was still in the same kind of shape was Jerry Rice. You know, he was the only one who wasn't sore the next day. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> like Jerry. Um, Roland, so uh, I want to talk quick about your work with, and we touched on it a little bit already, but the, the Champions Academy. Um, what, what inspired you? To, can you tell us more about that and what inspired you to start that? Well, if you're someone that's from or know about the Rochester, New York community, um, you probably know that there is a lot of challenges happening in our city. But I think people don't know how, how bad it's gotten, right? Um, about, you know, five years ago, I came back. I was getting an award for uh, a, a nonprofit in the area and had a chance to be reacquainted with how bad things have gotten in our hometown. And when I heard about the numbers, uh, where we are with poverty, extreme poverty, uh, HIV infections, murders, I mean, the list goes on and on. It broke my heart. And then when I heard about us being top in the country and fatherless homes, how 90 uh, of 100 students within our school district get suspended for social-emotional issues, I realized that we, we have an epidemic that needed uh, true attention and intervention. And so since I like, you know, attacking the big bully, I still got my NFL pedigree inside of my spirit, even though my knees don't do it the same. <laughs> um, basically, I wanted to see if I could solve it and come with a solution that was cost effective and uh, impactful and to put a dent into this crisis. And we did it. And so it's been five years of work. I fly back every single month from Los Angeles to go work. I started out with, you know, my credit card and the dream and, and an awful lot of my own resources. And over the last five years, uh, we've helped transform uh, more than a thousand teenagers that have been effectively written off uh, for all intents and purposes to revitalize themselves as students, as leaders, and as citizens, because, uh, we need them to be a part of this workforce of the 21st century, right? We need the next generation of Rochesterians of all backgrounds to be their best. And it's been some rewarding work, man. It's been a whole lot of fun. Yeah, well, no, I can. And, and I, you know, one of, one of my best friends, uh, Dan Travis, is actually a, a teacher at East High, your, your alma mater. Um, and, and he's, you know, so I could, I can, he's, won't shut up about all the work that, that you do. Um, and you know, he's told me about a lot of the struggles that, that the kids go through and it's really incredible what you've accomplished with the champions Academy. You've, you've had 82% of active members improve GPAs from the free previous year, 87% of active members improve financial literacy, 91% improved attitudes towards developing healthy relationships with peers and adults outside of the family, 89% improved attitudes, toward developing healthy relationships with police officers and authority figures. 
You had 23 active members achieve 4.0 GPAs for the first time uh, and 119 achieve 3.0 GPAs for the first time. That's pretty incredible work. Especially where they're starting from. Yeah. yeah. You know, we, we take some of the most challenged students and we ask them to put them in an uh, auditorium and leave. And what we do is basically um, parenting, helping rebuild students from the ground up. So many times students are faced with uh, trauma in their past, dealing with daily trauma, issues and challenges that make them unruly, that make it hard for them to focus. There's so many other factors that, that factor into a student failing other than them just being ignorant and have no desire to succeed, right? And so the Champion Academy, with our extreme mentoring model, we come in and we help students from the ground up. And so we've converted students from 0.0s to 4.0s, 1.0s, 3.0s. The list goes on and on. But most importantly, individuals you can count on that you can hire at your workplace, right? People who have character and discipline and are fundamentally sound with the basics of what it takes to be a positive and productive citizen. And that's what I'm most excited about, right? Every kid's not going to be a 4.0. Every kid's not going to be, you know, junior achievement. You know, it's not going to be a Rose Scholar. But it's fairly reasonable that every single teenager can be a positive, productive citizen and know how to be respectful and do the things the right way. Yeah, absolutely. And lives in Rochester, Thank you. Um, it's it's an incredible impact that you've had on this community, and uh, I f- have the feeling that you're just getting started. Um, Can so- you tell? Can you tell? I'm sorry, guys. I, guys, when you retire, listen, I, I got all the tendencies of a retired guy. You're, you retire from football. You get more wordy. You want to tell stories and talk. That's great. That's all. That's great. But also, I'm, I'm super competitive, and so I am doggedly determined. One of the big issues uh, in Rochester I've now become privy to understanding more is workforce, the workforce and workforce development and the big need for us to build the next generation of workers in our community. Well, my conversation has been, And my explanation to those out there is to say, before there's workforce development, there must be workforce readiness training. I can teach you all the skill sets on paper that I want to, but if you're not a teenager that knows how to, or you're not a professional that knows how to show up to work every day, have a good attitude, deal with challenges and emotions, learn about financial literacy so you can actually handle the money that you make, know how to be a positive, healthy, you know, husband, right? father, these kind of things, all these things factor into your ability to be productive in the workforce, even after you accomplish or achieve certain skill sets. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so the Champion Academy is the necessary precursor to workforce development. Workforce readiness is what we do, is to prepare them to be able to take advantage of these opportunities and win for the long term. So, so now, now retired guys like jumping back in the game now, of being super competitive to come with a solution to take our underdeveloped workforce and in the near future, turning it into one of the best ones in the state of New York and across the country. 
So Roland, have you been able to uh, set up corporate partnerships or how are you helping to fund the Champions Academy and how can, you know, how can our listeners help? Well, well, man, now, now you're talking about the number one dilemma and my biggest challenge. Um, I'm great at doing the work, not so great at being a fundraiser. So now one of the things that we've done to simplify things is give companies who care about the workforce of the 21st century, Rochester's future workforce, to join me by sponsoring one or more students to go to the Champion Academy for a four-year programming. Each year of programming costs Mm $3,500, and we take students from the eighth grade all the way through two years after high school. Wow. So we're looking and finding companies and people who are believing in us, and the list is growing rapidly um, to, to sponsor students and support us throughout the year. We don't have a golf tournament. We don't have any galas. Uh, we just have um, the hard work and the principles of what I believe it takes to be successful. So if you know anybody or if you are interested in it, our website is championacademyrock.org, championacademyroc.org. iHeartRadio came on. This is pretty cool. iHeartRadio came on and offered to give companies who sponsor students for 3500 bucks a piece $5,000 in complimentary radio on their stations to wow. add extra incentive. And we're trying to find other people to give more incentives. You know, I'm going to come and do uh, team building and performance coaching for companies who sponsor a certain amount of students, or I'll come do a keynote. You know, we're trying to do as much as we can to bring value to those who actually care. Um, I'm the leading donor at the Champion Academy, so don't worry. No one can ever catch up. You know, um, I've given a lot and we just need more people to join us. Right. We have a hardworking team of almost 10 and I love it, man. It's, it's great work. Um, it, it takes a lot and, and also it does require support of people. So I'm glad you brought that up, man. Thank you very much. I, I, I'm working on learning how to ask. So I'm asking <laughs> now via this podcast, right? If yeah. you're interested, please reach out. Please reach out. My email is Roland at Champion Academy. ROC.org. Look at me. Complete transparency. There I like it. I like it. You're probably about to get a lot of emails. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we'll put a link in the show notes yeah. to the, you know, to the Champions Academy website. And uh, for anybody who's interested in donating and it, because it is such a worthy cause and you're, you know, it's somewhere along the lines, societally, we've got to figure out a way to break this cycle and, and help, you know, help yes. kids to, you know, see a better life for themselves. Otherwise we just, it's a perpetual spiral. So it's such a wonderful thing you're doing, Roland. Amen. Thank you guys. Yeah. So Roland, uh, you mentioned something before we, before we started recording about a secret project you're working on. Do you want to, uh, uh, let the listeners in on, on what, what's in the works? <laughs> All right. Well, people who might be fans of this show may have already saw a little bit of it, but in case you don't know, I was actually on Shark Tank um, a few months ago. And uh, depending on when the shows, it could be way more months than that. But long story short, I was in the Shark Tank with a company that I invested in that had a unique solution for an old problem. It went great. And now we're coming back and we're getting ready to launch a new version, iteration of this product, an executive collection, an executive line, uh, that we plan on launching hopefully right around Super Bowl Sunday. So the company is called the Pocket Square Doctor, and the product we're going to be launching 
is doing customized luxury pocket squares that you can sort of put your initials and your own style and stuff to it. And also, we're going to be selling the executive collection of a, of a product called the Best Pocket Square Holder. And this product is, it solves the timeless problem of how to keep your square from sinking or moving inside your jacket. And anybody who's ever worn a pocket square, you know that's one of the big issues. Like, you don't know how to keep them still, or you don't know how to fold them, or you don't know what to do with them. Well, the pocket square doctor is going to solve all those problems for everybody and educate you and, and connect you with people from across the world who wear pocket squares. And we're going to become like the new center of the pocket square universe, so to speak. And so our website will be pocketsquaredoctor.com. And check us out, man. It's going to be cool. I'm a pocket square man. Okay. (laughs) Join the the pocket square revolution. I like it. We got to keep everybody looking sharp. Yes. Yes. I said, I, I said, you guys, thanks for the plug. I will be sending you all some custom pocket squares. Oh, on the house. Yeah, we'll be we'll right. be styling with Roland. Yeah, exactly. Look good, play good. There you go. Hey, and Roland. All right. I'm I'm curious about something else too. You mentioned, uh, you know, in passing. You know, when you when you came out of the league, I know that you do the speaking, the coaching work, the you know, working with with corporations and. Give us a little bit of an insight in terms of what have you seen as as you know working with professional athletes versus working with people in the, in, in corporate America? How have you, how have you helped people to, to transition from the lessons you learned there to what they need to focus on in the corporate world? Well, uh, that, that's a great question. And I, I love doing that work. Um, I, I think that since my philosophy or my brand of uh, team building leadership, coaching and things, it's more NFL in nature. Mm-hmm. It's, it's only for, um, individuals who are into honesty and the NFL intensity in their workplace. And so um, the clients I work with are excited about digging into the details and doing what it takes to be their absolute best and are interested in getting the truth, right, um, given to them in a real way that they can, they can take steps to improve. So one of the biggest takeaways that I learned from being a pro athlete to coming into the corporate space is the lack of consistency of excellent effort mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis. In the NFL, there's a requirement that you come and you have to perform every single day or every single day can be your last. That's in the game or in practice. In corporate America, with corporate athletes, some days a staff member will come in giving 90% of themselves, some days 72%, some days 85%, some days 20% if there's something going on at home that has them distracted, this uh, inconsistency costs companies millions of dollars every single year. Specifically, they say that every employee wastes between one hour to three hours every single day in personal tasks and movements and inefficiencies. If we only take one hour per employee per day, over the course of the year, that's 15 days of for free that they actually have wasted. 15 days they have wasted by literally just incrementally wasting time uh, throughout their year. And so when you're an employer 
and you say for every single employee that I have, at their minimum, 15 of those days are free. <laughs> that, is, that is a hefty bill that there seems to be, there would be some value in trying to diminish that number. And so um, what we do is, is very confrontational. Um, it's, it's NFL, you know, inspired uh, training and coaching uh, to get into the locker room and, and get into some of the, uh, the, the individual blockers where people have. And, and help them not just improve at the office, but help them improve in other areas of their lives because it's all connected, Yeah. right? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, as, as we kind of wrap up here, I had, uh, I had one more question for you, Roland. If, if you could give advice to your 16-year-old self, what would it be? I would say... Do your best and forget about the rest. I like that. There you go. I like right? that. Yeah. Do your best. And forget about the and rest. forget about the rest. That's beautiful. Hey, guys, one more thing before you take off. This is Motivational Intelligence Insider. It's just a very short, exclusive email uh, every Monday that comes from Dave, John, and the guests on this show. Uh, This is the only place they share their very, very best stuff, and it's delivered right to your inbox every single Monday. Uh, This could include exclusive tips for upping your game, uh, articles they're reading, videos they're watching, stories from the road, and on and on. It's the best way to kick off your week, and this content uh, comes directly from Dave, John, and the guests, and is only available to subscribers of Motivational Intelligence Insider. So if you want these guys in Galaxy email you their best stuff, go to 2logical.com forward slash insider. That's the number 2logical.com forward slash insider and drop in your email. And if you do, I hope you enjoy. The Motivational Intelligence Podcast is produced by the team at 2Logical. Logical is an international corporate training firm and the world's leading expert in motivational intelligence, which is the ability to understand, manage, and change the motives people have. Two Logical offers over 30 different keynotes, workshops, and full training courses to small, medium, and large Fortune 500 companies in 53 countries, a lot of which you're probably familiar with. Pavisor, Bank of America, GE, Constellation Brands, P&G, and more. All solutions are completely customized, and the feedback from these sessions will blow your mind. If you have any training or speaking needs or just want to say hey, head over to 2logical.com.